0: John, chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. It says, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them. Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her. Woman. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her. Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni or "Raboni," which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. In the 20th chapter of John, there's a series of startling discoveries and revelations. There's the empty tomb and there is this great recognition on the part of Mary. And later in the chapter, there's going to be a great charter, a commissioning that is going to take place for Jesus's disciples. And Mary has come to anoint the body and she's found the tomb unsealed. For those of you familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that she comes early in the morning. The seal has broken. The stone has been rolled away. Jesus has risen from the dead. The the guards have fled. Peter and uh, Mary has come. Peter and John have already visited the tomb. Mary And they have subsequently left and Mary now lingers at the tomb. Mary is on a journey. And the journey includes. A brief bout with grief. I don't know if grief or sorrow has ever grabbed you by the throat. And threatened you. But Mary's distress will lead to a remarkable discovery. Sorrow will become joy. Distress and despair are going to become delight. The biblical description of the resurrection... Even though it is wonderful and it certainly is, it frustrates many readers because they want to know more details. You hear and you see and you watch, but it presents so many questions and clearly the Holy Spirit knows better than I what to include or or what to exclude. And the things that the Holy Spirit has included is that Jesus is risen from the dead. That God is love, and God has shown his love to me, and God has shown his love to you, and God has demonstrated his love in a supreme fashion. That while we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. But if you've ever recently thought, or whispered, or shouted, Why is this happening? Why has this loss taken place? What is going on? Why is this happening? What do you want from me? I don't pretend that this answer is full or complete or even satisfying. But you need to know that the Lord wants you to believe in him. And to trust him and to love him and the Lord God wants you to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to trust Jesus. We live in a world where we want to keep our health and we want to keep our jobs and we want to keep our marriages and we want to keep our children. And it only takes a brief moment. It only takes one simple moment to shatter your life. And one of the most devastating things about grief is how suddenly it can happen and how fragile your world can come unraveled. When disaster strikes, we ask why and we search for answers. And joy seems so distant and so far away. And we sorrow and we grieve at what seems like an apparent defeat of goodness and truth. And we look for evidence that God is good and that God is in control. And that's what Mary is looking for. But make no mistake about it, she's also looking for a lifeless body and she has no eye idea. That she's going to meet a living Lord. I want you to remember the day. It's the day after the Sabbath. It is Sunday. It is It is the first day of the week. It is Sunday morning, and I want you just for a moment to picture in your mind the tomb. It's empty. The stone has been rolled away. The sun is coming up. Mary is lingering at the tomb. And if you could transport yourself back into the past and you could find yourself in front of this magnificent thing called the temple and you could see the temple and you could walk to the place where the priest is coming out out of the temple, according to the Jewish calendar, it would have been required of the high priest to come out of the courtyard and he would have lifted a sheaf of first fruits and he would have waved it before the Lord, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. He would have shown forth, if you will. The fruit. That had been hidden in the ground and has now been made manifest and is available to everyone. Paul understood this completely when he wrote that Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. Jesus is the priest, but he's also the sacrifice and and he's also the sheave. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 that we sorrow. But not like the rest of the world, not like those who have no hope. Look at verse 11 again. It says, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now remember what I've already told you. Peter and John have already returned to their home, but Mary lingers. One of the very sad things about being a pastor, if you want to, Put it that way, is I have an unfair share of time that I spend at graveyards. I frequent them, not by choice, but by circumstances, because your mothers, your fathers, your brothers, your sisters, your friends and your family die. And because I've spent a long time, many times at graves, I watch people. It's been my experience that men, once a person has died, can literally turn around and walk away from the grave. But women linger. And I've always found that interesting. Women have to be escorted away. You've heard the expression that good things come to those who wait. And in this case, it's very, very true. I want you to imagine with me for a moment what she must have been thinking. Why would anyone stay at a place when no one is there? She lingers. And when the Bible says she stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept, don't imagine this. (laughs) Jewish people are like Italian people. They wail. Bob Marley may have had his group called the Wailers, but these people wail. I mean, we're talking gut wrenching, heart stopping, blood curdling wailing. That's what you should imagine. These are loud, audible sobs. And what do you suppose Mary has brought with her to the empty tomb? It's been my experience when people come to graves, they bring all kinds of things. Sometimes people bring a poem. And they read the poem. Some people bring a psalm and they they read the psalm. And some people bring balloons and they release the balloons. And some people bring a philosophy and they begin to speculate, speculate about what may or may not be happening. Whatever else she's brought. She's brought deep affection and deep love and that love is manifest in her tears I want to ask you a question what do you suppose she's thinking and feeling do you suppose she wants the pain to go away and the sorrow to stop I suspect that each and every one of you have had some sort of introduction to grief at some point you experienced a loss and that loss affected you in a deep and a profound way for me Oddly enough, I was just a young man when when my dog died for For some of us, we walk in a world where there are unexpected terms. A family member is born with a a, a birth defect a, a young couple they walk into the baby 's room and there lying in the crib, the medical authorities tell you it 's sudden infant death syndrome, but nonetheless it 's still the same. The baby is is dead for some of you. It's the loss of innocence. We've had families in our church who have had to deal with the unthinkable. With kidnapping and murder. Children with cancer, the releasing of a child through adoption, the pain of divorce, the aftermath of rape, the the grief that comes when you're struggling through a personal illness and part of you Is cut away through mastectomy or disfigurement or disability. The Talmud says the deeper the sorrow, the less the tongue has to say. Max. Tyndall wrote, all sorrow and suffering are designed to teach us lessons that we would not or could not learn in any other way. And that is true. But grief may bring unwelcome and unwanted opportunities because I'm almost certain that none of you woke up that morning and thought, this is the day I want to learn my lesson. Sorrow like rain, makes roses and mud. But it comes. You know, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17, it says these wonderful words, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And Mary loves him. And in Luke chapter eight, verse two, you remember the story It says in certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene out of whom had come seven demons. Her early experiences with Jesus was an experience of liberation, of deliverance and hope of being washed and cleansed, of being given a, a, a clean body and a clean mind. She'd been delivered from an awful bondage. Some people can simply walk away from the tomb. But not Mary. And I suspect Peter and John's earlier examination had emboldened her. Yes, she is experiencing grief, but it is a it's a kind of a grief that's mixed with courage. And she stoops down and she peers into the tomb and she's looking into this tomb with tear filled eyes of pain. And in the next few moments, she's going to see a series of circumstances that are going to change her life forever. We rarely consider lingering in an empty tomb as revolutionizing your life. But that's exactly what's going to happen to her. And look what it says in verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, see the picture. Two angels, one at the head. The other at the feet of the body where Jesus had lain. One of the very first questions you should ask is, how did she know which side was the head and which side was the feet? I'm going to suggest to you that she knew. Because she had been there. I'm going to suggest to you that she knew. Because she walked with Jesus as he he made the journey to the cross. She walked with Jesus and stood by Jesus when he was crucified on the cross. She saw Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take his dead body from the cross. She watched as they sponged his body and wiped off the blood and wrapped his body in the linen and carted him off to the tomb. Make no mistake about it. She saw it. Now, remember what angels are. They're ministering spirits. They're messengers who are sent by God to carry out God's plan or or God's will or God's message. And I also want to remind you of something else earlier on in the chapter, Peter pokes his head into the tomb and John goes into the tomb and neither one of them see angels. My question. I wonder if they were there all along. I wonder if they'd never left. Sometimes grief. Will cause you to see things. That people who don't pause in their grief allow themselves to see. They're dressed in white and that's a fitting symbol of purity and perfection, sinlessness. White becomes the garment of freedom because it means freedom from stain and impurity. Those who grieve sometimes see only the natural. But from time to time, they... See the supernatural, by the way, this image reminds me of the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It's described in Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. You can imagine just like this ledge, you have an angel on one end and an angel on the other. On the mercy seat, there was a there was a box. It was made of gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the lid, there was an angel or a cherubim and another angel and their wings almost touched. And it was that surface that was stained with blood in order to offer access to God. And now the Ark of the Covenant has been replaced with this tomb where two angels are. And there is a ledge, but it's more than a ledge. It's a portal. Into the supernatural, into a place where you can know and talk with God. And in verse 13, it says, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Pause. Gentlemen, never, ever ask a woman why she's weeping. Unless you really want to know the answer. And if you ask the question why she's weeping, then you need to let her talk. Don't try and put words in her mouth. Let her simply say what what she needs to say. And look at her response in verse 13. It says she said to them because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Question. The angels ask the question, Mary, why are you weeping? Do they have a pretty good idea of what the answer is? Don't you hate it when people ask you questions and they already know the answer? But I want to suggest something to you. The question is asked in order for the angels to do their job, they're there to minister. And to comfort. And in order to provide ministry and in order to provide comfort. They need to ask this question. I know how I would answer. Because whenever I've heard the question asked at graveyards, you know what I simply say? Isn't this the place where people are supposed to cry? Aren't graveyards the place? If ever there was a place, if any place is a place where you can cry, why couldn't it be this place? It was William Kuyper who said that grief is itself a medicine. Can you imagine some of the responses she might have been able to give? Why are you weeping? I'm numb. I'm hurt. I'm outraged, I'm confused, I'm empty, I'm depressed, I feel guilt, I feel fear, I feel abandonment, I feel isolation. Grief is about our loss and our loneliness and our and our desolation and and our separation. And we rarely give way to the thought that our separation and our isolation and our pain means that our loved one is now God's guest. And sometimes our tears blind us to God's glory. Why are you weeping? So we read the Psalms and we read the book of Job. Or we'll read a book like C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. And uh, I remember when I read it a long time ago, I, I remember reading it and thinking here is a man who believes in God. And here is a man who is struggling to find evidence of his goodness. He had married a woman named Joy, and she also had a son. And his her her son, by the way, has spoken from this very pulpit. He was. He uh, was promoting his movie Narnia, and he talked about his relationship with C.S. Lewis and the death of his mother. And he he talked about going up into the attic and he could hear C.S. Lewis sobbing downstairs over the loss of his mother. And in his book, he writes, C.S. Lewis writes, and no one ever told me about the laziness of grief, not only Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. Even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth? You know, Lewis describes his own feelings as he's processing through the death of his wife. And he writes. It feels like being mildly drunk. Or concussed, there's a a sort of an invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. Perhaps the bereaved ought to be isolated in special settlements like lepers, unquote. She's numb and, and hurt. And the angels ask, why are you weeping? The implication being, do you have a good reason for crying? Jesus has earlier told the disciples and the women that he's going to rise on the third day. Why didn't he understand? Why didn't she understand Mary's answer? Because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Now, I want you to remember something. She speaks to the angels in almost the same words that she uses for Peter and for John. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think she realizes that they're angels? Does she know? She's not talking to them like they're supernatural beings. Does she understand that they're from heaven? I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I want you to read for a moment. Between the lines, I'm not asking you to make the line go away, but I am going to ask you something. Reread it because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. I want to ask you a question. Is Mary looking for someone who is alive or is Mary looking for someone who's dead? Go ahead. You can say it. just talk to me for a minute. Dead is right. In her heart and in her mind, he is dead. Is she devoted? Is she loyal? Is she passionate? Yes, is right. But the spiritual significance hasn't broken through into her troubled thinking. She's looking for a dead man. And the reason why she's looking for a dead man is for all of the reasons why we've already spoken. She watched him die. She watched him bleed. She watched him removed from the cross. She watched him being placed in that tomb. And she knows what you know. That dead people don't have power. Over life and death. Dead people can't make tears go away and dead people can't mend a broken heart. And Mary has, is living just like the rest of the world. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 where he says that they are strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. She's acting like an unbeliever and like a person who has no hope. And unfortunately, like I said, I've had my unfair share of funerals. There was a lady whose small daughter had died under the most cruel of circumstances. And I'm at her funeral. And I'm trying to give some sense of hope, some sense of peace, some sense of encouragement and I'm speaking to the mother and I say that there is a real God and that there is such a place as heaven. That God is real and that God is good. And she said, I don't believe you. She said. I guess I'm just going to have to bury my little girl and pretend like I never had her. What do you say? How do you wrap Your mind around the truth that the resurrection properly understood means that we weep, but we don't weep as many bitter tears. We weep, but they're not hopeless tears. Our tears become a mechanism for consolation. We see the shadow of death, but the substance is Christ. and look what it says in verse 14 now when she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and she didn't know that it was Jesus that's the clue there's a clue that's given to us she senses a presence be behind her and look at the text in verse 14 there is a clue in the word turned she turned around Which way is her face pointing? It's the grave it's it's this grave It's this grave with these two strange guys dressed up like Pat Boone. She's looking into an empty grave and her focus and her attention and her her preoccupation and her grief and her tears are focused on this grave. And because her focus is on the grave, she has yet to turn around. In verse 15, it says, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. That's what grief does. Grief decides that the impossible becomes possible. Is little Mary Magdalene going to be able to tote this body around? I don't think so. And Jesus repeats the angel's question and adds something. Woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? And Mary thinks the man is the gardener. And she wonders if he's removed the body for some inexplicable reason. And why doesn't she recognize Jesus? Uh, Scholars have debated this for a thousand years and more. Well, has his appearance changed? Does his glorified body look different? Have grief and tears combined to cloud the ability to see? Is it possible that she doesn't recognize him? Is this a situation like on the road to Emmaus? For whatever reason, Jesus keeps the disciples from understanding who he is. He conceals his identity for a moment in order to reveal it later. But could it be as simple as what the text says in verse 14? That she has her back turned to Him? And she's hearing these words and she turns to face Him? Is it possible that she doesn't recognize the Lord because in her heart and in her mind, He is dead? And her eyes are so filled with tears that she can't believe what's right in front of her? And sometimes that's exactly the way we deal with our grief, our loss, our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, our child, our marriage, our innocence. It's gone. And the emptiness is what reminds us of its. Disappearance. Grief clouds reality and obscures what is obvious to everyone else. And can you imagine the angels? They're laughing. Because all she needs to do is just simply turn around and see what's real. Mary fails to see Jesus because she's facing in the wrong direction. She's facing an empty tomb and it's difficult to take your eyes off the grave. And so it is with us, isn't it? Sometimes we're so focused on the loss and we're so focused on the injury and we're so focused. On the urn. Or the cold grave or the bitter ground or the casket or the crypt. And we know that our loved one isn't really there. Their body may be there. But the real person, the saved person isn't there. And we begin to understand Jesus's words of unless The seed is buried. It won't come up and bear fruit. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians where he likens death to a seed, a grain, and you stick it in the dirt. But how different is the flower from the dirt that you place it in? Imagine how unmistakably different the seed is from the flower. And Paul says, so is the body that's sown different from the body that comes back to life. You might be thinking, well, what if I don't know the spiritual circumstances? What if I don't know that this person is with Jesus? What if I don't know? Whether or not they went to heaven, I'll tell you what I have found comfort in. When I don't know the spiritual circumstances of the person that I'm burying I give myself comfort by reminding myself that it is Jesus who makes the decision. You see, Jesus has access to things that you've never seen. Jesus knows a person from the moment they're conceived to the moment that they're born. Jesus sees every moment. He sees every tear. He sees every thought. He hears everything. He understands every radio broadcast, every television broadcast, every conversation, every silent circumstance when the person was laying on their bed and no one else heard anything else. Jesus knows. And I feel absolutely confident and comfortable trusting Jesus to make the right decision about my loved one. Jesus will exercise perfect justice. And in verse 16, look what it says. Jesus says to Mary. She said to her, Mary, she turned. Ah, there's the clue. And said to him, Raboni, which is Italian for teacher. No, it's not. It's not Italian. It's Aramaic. But it ended with an eye. It seems like it should be Italian. She's been facing in the direction of the empty tomb. And now she faces Jesus. And I want to point something else out to you. Because her focus and because her face is towards the grave, she hears the voice. And she recognizes the voice. Way before she recognizes the face. Isn't that just like you? You hear his voice. You hear the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit whispering in your heart. Peter is the first one in the empty tomb. John is the first one at the empty tomb. John is the first one to believe the risen Jesus is, has come alive from the tomb. But Mary is the first to see the living, risen, glorified Savior. And this is interesting. Because it gives us a clue of how we can confront our own grief and our own sorrow. We can turn around and look at Jesus. You know the song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it's true. If just for a moment you can take your eyes off of the loss, have you noticed that loss comes in all sizes? You can lose little things it can bug you. You know, I was preparing this message. Someone broke into my car as it was in my own driveway. They broke into the car. They steal my monster cable. They steal my Maui Jim glasses that I've had for two years. Lord, my glasses are gone. My cable is gone. Are you blind? Have you completely ignored the whole lesson that I've tried to give you these last few days as you've been preparing this message? By the way, if something can be stolen from you. Hey, it was fun while it lasted. But there's certain things that can never be taken away from you. Your life is hid in Christ. Your forgiveness is in Christ. You have joy. You have eternal life. The things that matter can never, ever be taken from you. No wonder Jesus says in the New Testament, don't put treasures on the earth where moth and and rust can corrupt. But put things in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt. What is it that you love and what is it that you care about and what is it that you're living for and what is it that you're working for? If you live long enough, the chances are someone you love will die. And when we see our dead and we linger at their graves, we sometimes forget about the risen Savior. We weep and we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Mary will simply turn around and see Jesus, and there's a transformation that takes place. You know, the Scripture gives us permission to express rather than suppress our feelings. Isaac grieved for his father Abraham. Jacob and Esau grieved for their father Isaac. The family of Joseph grieved as they gathered around him. Even Jesus wept when he came to the the grave of his friend Lazarus. We're not told we can't cry. But we need to cry in such a way that we understand something. That there will come a time when tears will become joy. I want you to know the other thing. She hears the voice of Jesus. She hears her own name spoken by that endearing, familiar voice. She recognizes His voice before she sees His face. And I think it becomes a picture of the life of the believer. Remember, Jesus said, My sheep know My voice. And they hear Me. Jesus said in in, in John chapter 17, verse 17, everyone that is of the truth, hears my voice. Remember in Revelation chapter three, verse 20, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice. And open the door. I'll come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Mary hears his voice, and she calls him Raboni. It's an endearment in in the language. It means my master. It doesn't simply mean rabbi. It means my rabbi, my master. It's, it's, It's a title of intimacy and respect. And Mary acknowledges that Jesus is the Lord and the master. And she's the humble servant. Sorrow has become joy. And in verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. For I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And this becomes confusing and troubling for some because the King James says, touch me not. And you go, what? The person you love has come back to life and you say, don't touch me. The verb, by the way, in the original language is hapto and it's found in the middle voice. It means to lay hold of something or grab something or grab someone. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is telling Mary to stop clinging. And and again, it means in the sense, Mary, you're going to need to let go. He's come back to life. She is at her master's feet. And as she's holding on, you can imagine what's going through her heart. I've lost you once. I'm never going to lose you ever again. And Jesus says, guess what? This physical body has got a reunion scheduled in heaven. The New American Standard correctly translates this. Stop clinging to me. The NIV says, don't hold on to me. But who can blame her? you're honest, you would too. You would hold on. It can't be some weird thing like, well, maybe they can't touch his body because it's not really there. No. Clearly, Jesus invites Thomas in a few short verses in verse 27. He says, touch me. He says, place your hand in my wounds and place your hand in my side and see that it's me. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, in Matthew's gospel, we read, they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. The resurrection creates a new level of intimacy and relationship. Jesus is not simply an earthly rabbi or a human teacher. He is the living Lord. He is going to ascend into heaven. And the message that Jesus gives to Mary to tell the disciples begins with I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. The message, in part, is I have a plan. And the plan includes me at some point going back to heaven. Jesus is the first fruits of redemption. And she clings for a moment. Jesus reveals to Mary that part of his plan includes going back to heaven. Question. Does this mean another bout with grief? Another bout with separation? Another bout with anxiety? Anxiety? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's possible, even just for a moment? Is it possible that Mary, just for a moment, is not happy with Jesus' plan? Uh, I'm going to need to go. I, I want you to stay. I'm going to heaven. I need you to remain here on the earth. Have you ever done that? Please. Please. I need the plan to change. I need you to be here with me. I'm not ready for you to be gone. I need help. And Jesus had earlier said in John chapter 14, verse 16, and I will pray the father and he'll give you another helper. That he may abide with you forever. In Hebrews 13:5 it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with everything that you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Covetousness is the driving lust that insists that you need something else. But we're to be content and we're to refrain from complaining. Or what the Bible calls murmuring. We murmur and complain when we question God's right and God's authority and God's command. And if you are going to call Jesus Rabboni. You need to be able to say your plan is better than my plan. And your will is better than my will. Jesus says, but go to my brethren. And by the way, if you're one of those people who underlines your Bible, this is the first time Jesus refers to his followers as brethren. He's called them followers. He's called them disciples. He's even called them friends. But now he says, brethren. He says, I'm going to my father and your father. My God and your God. And now we understand what Paul meant when he wrote, and he is the first fruit from among the dead. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces grain. And in verse 18, look what it says. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Imagine. She has a whole lot to learn about what it means to serve a risen Savior. She has a whole lot to learn about ascension and seated at the right hand of the Father. She has a whole lot more to learn. We love Christmas because it's a time of joy and we love the resurrection because it brings this note of triumphant certainty. And Mary finds her way back to the disciples with a message. Jesus is alive and I have spoken to him and he has spoken to me. Question. Do they believe her? They don't. Mary, it hasn't been invented yet, but it's called a psychotic break. In your grief and in your sorrow, you only imagined that you saw him. And you only imagined that you spoke to him. And you only imagined the angel's message. This is going to become important for you. They reject the testimony of the empty tomb for the most part. John believes they reject the message of the angels and they reject the message of this woman. Just like some of you. You've heard the story over and over again, but you've never, ever really believed it for yourself. A grieving woman becomes the first evangelist, and the distinction of having seen the resurrected Savior. John Phillips writes Thus, Mary Magdalene, a woman, was the first to see the risen Christ, the first to hear his voice, the first to touch him, the first commissioned by him, the first to tell the glad tidings to others. I like that. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means more than just simply believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. It means receiving him. You know, the Bible says we're not born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God, our new birth, our new life, our regeneration is this creative act of the Holy Spirit. But also in First John, chapter one, verse 13, it says, yet those who received him, that is Jesus. We're born of God. The Bible says you have to believe as well as receive. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And no matter how clever or compelling I present this message, in the end, if I can talk you into it, someone more clever can talk you out of it. This is a work of God, by the Spirit of God in order to create the life of God for the child of God. And if your heart is empty, and if your heart is dark, and if your heart is cold, and you've never met Jesus, you have to receive Him. But make no mistake about it, the Holy Spirit calls your name. And invites you into that life, let's pray, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person, Lord, I pray by your holy Spirit, you will call that man and you will call that woman by name. Lord, I pray that you would knock on the door of their heart, but Lord, I also pray that they would open that door. Lord, I pray that even as the invitation is extended, that the invitation will be received. And that they'll experience life and not death and joy, not sorrow and hope, not grief. And Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to some and more real to others. Lord, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I know that my life is dead and dark and trespass and sin and that I need to experience hope and love and life. And Lord, I'm willing to take my eyes off the death and now firmly and finally fix them on life. Lord, I pray that they would see You and love You and know You and experience what it means to be born again. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.